This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to FIGP's podcast series, FIGP Focus 45. FIGP is the only international NGO whose membership consists entirely of IP attorneys in private practice. The FIGP global community is driven by a shared interest among like-minded people to promote common solutions and advocacy for private practice. The FIGP business family makes the world a little bit smaller, bringing independent IP attorneys from around the globe together to focus on IP issues of global importance. Our host is Louis-Pierre Gravel, a registered patent agent and partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to FICPI's webinar and podcast series, FICPI Focus 45. My name is Louis-Pierre Gravel, and I'm a partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Today, I'm extremely pleased to host Edward Kwakwa, Assistant Director General of the World Intellectual Property Organization. Good morning, good afternoon, Mr. Kwakwa. How are you today? Good afternoon. Pleasure to, to be with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And the topic for today is the IGC. And I think it's apt as we near the tail end of this particular series to reflect on the fairly long history that the IGC has and uh, its, its work up to now and what you may see as the continuing work that could be done. So if you could perhaps start by you know, explaining to us what is the IGC? Thank you very much. Before I get into that, let me first of all convey to you, Louis-Pierre, and to all your FICP members, very warm greetings from the Director General of WIPO, Mr. Darren Tang. He actually would have liked to be here with us, but uh, he's on duty travel somewhere. So he said just to pass on his hello. I should also like to compliment FICP on the very important work you are doing. Of course, you are an important observer at some of our meetings, including the IGC, which you just asked me about. So that brings me to the IGC. The IGC is the acronym for the Intergovernmental Committee. And this is a committee that was established in WIPO in 2000. It was established, maybe I can say for two, two reasons. The first reason was there was a perception that we needed to bring issues relating to traditional knowledge, traditional cultural expressions, or as it was called at the time, folklore, and then just access to genetic resources to the table for discussion. But 
the second and important reason as to how the IGC was established is that in 2000, very few people are aware of the fact that in WIPO, we had a conference, a diplomatic conference for a patent law treaty, patent law treaty. And it turns out one of the proposals on the table at the time was that we have what we call a disclosure of origin issue, such that applicants for patent protection would have to disclose the source of origin of any genetic resource that they had used for the patent, the product for which they were seeking a patent. The member states of WIPO at the time decided not to include any such provision in the patent law treaty, but they decided instead, let's find another forum where we can discuss issues relating to genetic resources, disclosure of source of origin, and their relation to the intellectual property system. So this is the second important reason why the IGC ended up being established. And it's comprised of the 193 member states of WIPO. It's comprised of participation is also open to intergovernmental organizations, to non-governmental organizations such as industry, such as indigenous peoples and local communities. And in all, it's a very inclusive community. The, the way you present it is, uh, is uh, very collegial, very... Uh optimistic very but I, i'm sure there must have been some some tension was there was there a group of countries or a, a someone or some people who advocated for carving out this discussion from the patent law treaty and putting it into a separate or a separate venue for the conversation interesting you you put the question that way i don't want to make it sound like there was a schism as such between no. groups of countries no, no, and I, and I and I'm not tr- suggesting that there was a schism, but I, I, okay. I, you know, I, I do understand that these are not always the easy conversations because of the nature of the topic within the uh, the IGC, and I'm and I'm I'm just trying to understand what the dynamics were at the time. Not not to suggest that there was a schism, but just to understand the dynamics because that I think will impact and will affect the continuing work of the IGC. No, you're right. I think at the time the perception was, and this was mostly developed countries taking the position, well, let's not confuse issues relating to traditional knowledge, genetic resources, disclosure of origin. They are not, at the time the argument was, they are not a distinct part of the intellectual property system as we know it. So let's put this discussion in another forum. Let's not bring it here to WIPO. And that was the sense in which it was sidetracked to another forum. Right. And and you use the word sidetracked, but I I don't consider this to be like a shifting of the conversation to a a secondary or or an unimportant forum. I think the IGC, certainly the way that it's being handled and promoted by WIP, by WIPO, um, certainly elevates it at the same level as the negotiations for patent law treaty or trademark harmonization or other kinds of initiatives that WIPO is working on. So I think, you know, I think we, the, the, certainly the members of FICB recognize this work is important. And certainly countries that have a large indigenous population, such as uh, New Zealand or Australia or, or Canada, recognize that 
the notion of traditional knowledge and traditional cultural expression is an important part of the conversation to ensure that 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 knowledge, that savoir, if I may use a, a French word, is is protected, preserved, and and uh, credit goes to the people who developed it. Yes, definitely. By the way, Louis Pierre, I'm very impressed you refer to WIPO as opposed to WIPO. I have been in WIPO for over 25 years now, and when I joined WIPO in 1996, I was instructed. You don't say WIPO, you say W-I-P-O. <laughs> and apparently the reason is our first director general said the acronym WIPO sounded like a cleaning product. So that's why we <laughs> had to say W-I-P-O. But to, to come back to your question, yes, I mean, I definitely think, and you are right, countries such as Canada, Australia, New Zealand, even the United States, while they really, really adhere to and they support the traditional intellectual property system, also have important indigenous communities within their ranks. And that is why when we have in WIPO something such as the IGC, those countries also pay particular importance to what's taking place in the IGC because they see it as of concern and of interest to their intellectual property system as well. So yes, I mean, going forward, and of course, I'm happy to get into a lot more detail on how indigenous people, local communities interact with the member states. But that's one of the paradigmatic attributes of the IGC in WIPO. So the mandate of the IGC, the IGC was established, like I said, in 2000. And at the time in 2000, its mandate generally was to be looking for how best to protect traditional knowledge, traditional cultural expressions, and genetic resources. At the time, that was the broad mandate. But this mandate has more recently been specifically honed down. And now, surprisingly, the mandate of the IGC specifically includes trying to arrive at an international legal instrument or instruments. So the word S is added to the instrument, acknowledging we may have more than one instrument. And this international legal instrument or instruments are supposed to better protect traditional knowledge, traditional cultural expressions, and access to genetic resources without prejudging any other outcomes in any other fora. That is the mandate of the IGC. And since 2011, it has been renewed every two years along pretty much the same terms. So that's what the IGC is up to. Looking on the WIPO or WIPO, website. The work of the committee has been ongoing since the early 2000s. And as I understand it, there recently was a session that was held uh, in Geneva or a hybrid session, at least because of COVID restrictions. There's the 43 sessions. I mean, that that's a lot of work coming up from the end of May to, to June. How far along would you characterize the work of the committee to achieving this objective of having one or many uh, instruments that the countries can then take back and integrate into their national legislation. Uh, thank you. So yes, how far do I think we have come along? First of all, I should stress in 2000, when the IGC was established, there was no mention or expectation of an eventual diplomatic conference. No one spoke about 
text-based negotiations. <laughs> but then maybe I should also say we were all taken by surprise, pleasant surprise, when over 10 years ago, the General Assembly of WIPO for the first time decided to include in the IGC's mandate specific references to quote and unquote text-based negotiations, specific references to international legal instruments, specific reference to the possible convening of a diplomatic conference. So this is around about 10 years after the IGC had been established. It had already gone that far in having references to text-based negotiations and the potential diplomatic conference. When the IGC met two months ago, and as you mentioned, this was the 42nd session, they had three different documents for discussion among the member states. Incidentally, Louis Pierre, this was, most people called it a hybrid meeting because for two years due to the pandemic, the IGC had been unable to meet. This time, although it was a hybrid meeting, we had well over 200 participants online, meaning in their respective countries. But we also had well over 200 persons attending physically. So it was a really good combination. And we were not sure in WIPO after two years of no meetings how this would go. We think it went very well. As to the final outcome, this 42nd meeting, there were three different documents, like I said, one on traditional knowledge, one on traditional cultural expressions, and the IGC more or less agreed to transmit the current drafts to the next session of the IGC, which is at the end of May going into early June. Importantly, there is also currently on the table what we call a chair's text. This is a text that has been developed by the former chair of the IGC, Mr. Ian Goss from Australia, on his own responsibility. But that text was so well accepted by the entire IGC membership that they decided to adopt it, not as a chair's text, but as an IGC document. So now the IGC has come as far as having a whole chair's text adopted as an IGC text and to be further elaborated upon and negotiated at the next session of the IGC. So I think we've come quite a distance considering how we were a few years back. That is actually very interesting because for those of us who have some experience in diplomatic negotiations, mm -hmm. um, arriving or, or going from an initial mandate that had absolutely no inkling of proposing a diplomatic text or to had a, a text in mind to having a, a chair's text and then two other texts that are open for negotiation is is almost working at light speed in, in terms of negotiation, in international negotiations. And I think that certainly is probably a testament to the willingness of the various countries to arrive at an agreement of, of some form. And I think that is extremely important. Definitely, definitely, extremely important. And incidentally, I should also mention, I did talk about progress made, but I should also mention, Louis Pierre, in addition, when we had the 42nd session of the IGC, there was sort of a handing over of the baton. The chair was 
Mr. Ian Goss, he had been very, very active and participated in most of the sessions of the IGC. I guess the previous 10 years, he was a facilitator. He was a friend of the chair before he became the chair himself. And that's how he was able to, on his own responsibility, come up with a whole text that has been adopted by the committee as a whole. When I refer to a passing on of the baton, it was concluded the IGC decided to elect Mr. Ian Goss to chair the 42nd session. And it also, in addition, decided to elect a new chair, Ms. Uh, Lily Claire Bellamy. This is the head of the Jamaican Intellectual Property Office, and she was actually a previous vice chair of the IGC herself. So she's also familiar with the processes of the IGC. And when the IGC resumes at the 43rd session at the end of May, Ms. Lily Claire Bellamy will be the chair, and the vice chairs will be Mr. Eukaliedis from Finland and Mr. Jonas Seleti from South Africa. So this will be continuity in progress and we expect it to go even further after that. Well, I think the organization needs to be commended on a number of fronts on this part. We had a, a speaker earlier in our series to talk about the importance of women in leadership positions and having a, a, a woman chair, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first time that there's a woman chair of the IGC. Um, I think that's a, that's also a, a testament to the resilience and openness of the organization, and, and you must be commended for that. Um, there's a few questions that have come up on on the on the chat, and I'd like to pose them to you. Uh, so the first question is: Do you think that acknowledgement of traditional cultural expressions as intellectual property by the Walt Disney Company in its agreement with the Sami people for the animated movie Frozen Two could help change the approach from countries like USA and Japan? Thank you for that question. Yes, I definitely think, I know as someone who is supposed to be an international civil servant, I'm supposed to be diplomatic with my responses, but I can say categorically, I think it will change the approach. And it's not just in respect of the Walt Disney example you've given, it's also in respect of various other recent examples, including the Hakuna Matata issue, including Kim Kardashian saying she's going to trademark the common symbols. It's, it's various things. What I think all this is creating is that, and you put it in the context of an IGC being established in WIPO. First of all, it helps us all demonstrate that the intellectual property system is flexible and that it benefits a broad range of interests. It's not just as was traditionally known in the past, an esoteric group of people, an esoteric, a small group of developed countries for whom intellectual property matters. Secondly, I think it helps us to respond to standing calls, especially from developing countries, for greater equity and balance in the intellectual property system. So when you have a company as big as Disney say we are going to do this and give recognition to interests and rights of indigenous communities, indigenous people. It inspires fresh confidence in, the, in multilateralism as a whole, and it strengthens when we talk about intellectual property, the intellectual property system's contribution even to sustainable development, thereby bolstering perceptions of the intellectual property system's legitimacy 
to all regions, to all groups. So that's the sense in which I categorically say yes to your question. Do you refer to us having a woman as the chair of the IGC? This is not something I can take credit for because she was nominated by the group of Latin American and Caribbean countries. But because we know her personally, we expected to do a very good job as the chair of the IGC. But speaking of women and gender parity and the intellectual property system, I am also happy to remind your FICPI delegates in case they are not already aware that for the first time, our director general has appointed a gender champion and he's selected Miss Lisa Jorgensen, who may be known to a lot of you as WIPO's gender champion. So in addition to overseeing the patents and technology sector in WIPO, as you may know, this is the sector that generates over 75% of WIPO's income. Lisa is also going to be acting as our gender champion to make sure women are adequately represented at the table in discussions and that they are reflected, the society, the system reflects the important role women are playing in the intellectual property system. So yes, we are happy. Again, this wasn't my establishment. It wasn't my idea, but I'm happy to announce the director general does have a gender champion. And I think we can only do even better as we go ahead from now on. And I think that's that's just wonderful. And I and I think our, our FICP membership will, will just simply applaud this kind of initiative and this kind of work that, that's being done. I do want to come back a little bit to the issue of large multinational companies legitimately paying a little bit more attention to traditional knowledge and cultural expressions. I guess the question I want to ask is the rise of social media generally has enabled a sort of a democratization of public discourse. And we've seen the swiftness with which, uh, you know, reactions can go completely viral on, on social media. Do you think that given the evolution of the mandate of the IGC over the years, that potentially could be mapped against a rise in social media? Could we characterize that as a greater knowledge, a greater awareness of these issues that are in turn pushing the countries to be more attuned to these issues and more flexible in their approach? Again, Louis-Pierre, I can categorically say yes to your question. And I say yes for the simple reason. And incidentally, in WIPO, I am supposed to be responsible for our new outreach we call it youth engagement. And so since you are mentioning social media in the context of multinational companies, I can speak authoritatively on this matter, at least where WIPO's youth engagement is concerned. And I refer to youth engagement only because when we talk about social media, I think that's where you have the youth in this day and age. And of course, again, the youth happens to constitute the preponderance of the world's population in this day and age. So to the extent you have a multinational company, it does something, and then it's immediately, let me say, cut out on social media, and this just goes viral. I mean, things happen by the minute on social media, and the youth just end up bringing pressure on these multinational companies, either to say, you can't do this, or to compliment them for having done what they are alleged to have done, 
on social media. So again, the point I'm making is, yes, social media is transforming the way we all operate. And it's either for a good reason or for a bad reason. It's for a good reason in the sense that it's putting us, making sure we put up our best behaviors. It could be for a bad reason in the sense that if you have, let me not mention government, but if you have a totalitarian government somewhere and that government is using social media to give what we can call disinformation, that's clearly a bad use of social media. But where the multinational companies are concerned, and I know that's the context in which you asked your question, my response would be yes, I think social media is helping enhance their corporate social responsibility, if I can put it that way. Shifting gears just a little bit, the traditional IP framework, when we talk about patents or we talk about trademarks or copyright, the notion of an individual or an entity's ownership of that particular embodiment, an innovation or an aspect of intellectual property, sometimes is at odds with the more traditional concepts of traditional knowledge, cultural expression, genetic resources, which have not an individual, but rather a communal approach to ownership. And also this notion that this knowledge or the cultural expressions evolve in time. They're not static. They're very dynamic. They're fluid to a certain extent. So I guess the the question which leads into something like this, which was asked by an attendee is, from an international point of view, there is likely to be more need for international collective approaches to tackling some of the pressing issues of our times, such as uh, environmental regeneration or sustainability. To what extent do you see the IGC mandate or regime playing a pivotal role in distributing IP resources that are likely to be needed for this collective approach of the sharing and the, and the, the benefit for all of this of these resources? That's a tough one, Louis Pierre. So yes, thank you. Well, first of all, I perfectly agree with you. And I think this may be one of the most difficult issues we are facing in the IGC. We go to the IGC and we see we are immediately faced with questions of substance, the nature of the issues itself. So a country, a delegation says, well, wait a minute. When we talk about the intellectual property system, if it's, in, if it's copyright we are discussing, we talk about originality. If it's trademarks, we talk about distinctiveness. If it's patents, we talk about going beyond the prior art. We talk about industrial applicability, novelty. The idea being when it comes to indigenous people, local communities, traditional knowledge, as we are discussing in the IGC, we don't have that concept there. And there in the IGC concept, in the discussion on traditional knowledge, as you pointed out, Louis-Pierre, it's more a communal ownership. So we are trying to say, well, who are the beneficiaries? And some delegations will say, we can't discuss this because we don't even know who the beneficiaries are. We can't say it's just a collective system or it's a community that owns the intellectual property. When it comes to the IGC, I think the IGC is going to be useful because, as you know, they are trying to see how best we can protect traditional knowledge, traditional cultural expressions, and access to genetic resources. 
So what the IGC is trying to do, and this is a matter for the delegations, the member states themselves to decide, of course, with the assistance of non-governmental organizations, including the Indigenous Caucus, which is a very active participant. They want to be able to see how best we can use collective management, let's put it that way, or the idea of collective ownership, which would obtain in the IGC context, in the traditional knowledge context, how we can transpose that to the idea of collective ownership, individual ownership, sorry, or even corporate ownership. In other words, let's see how best we can merge the traditional knowledge area with the traditional intellectual property area so that we end up giving protection also to the traditional knowledge area even if a description of the traditional knowledge area doesn't always fit the boxes that we tick in terms of the traditional intellectual property area. So in that sense, I think the IGC is a very welcome process because it's enabling the member states of the organization together with non-governmental entities to discuss how best they can refine one type of ownership, one type of intellectual property, and see if they can also give protection to that type of intellectual property as is done in respect of other established types of intellectual property. There's just so many different questions that come to mind after hearing your your response. I think I'm going to go to another question that was asked because it ties into what you've just said, which is, do you think in the eventually that this would happen, the multiplication of national and regional texts on traditional knowledge or traditional cultural expression or and genetic resources in different countries. Do you think this could lead to a de facto international or at least a multi-regional protection for these intangible assets? Uh, yes, that's a good one. Well, first of all, you and I know intellectual property is territorial. And so I am not sure I would jump to a conclusion and say, because we have national types of protection, it's going to end up providing international types of protection. But let me start by acknowledging what you said. Yes, the IGC has very little to look to in terms of either national or regional protection. You take regional, for example, as far as I know, the only type of regional protection we have now is on Proudly, I can say my continent, Africa. And this is the African Regional Intellectual Property Organization's Swakopmund Treaty for the Protection of Traditional Knowledge. This was adopted some 10 years ago and it has entered into force. But we don't have other similar regional models of protection for traditional knowledge. When it comes to national, yes, we have quite a few national and we increasingly are getting more national. But the position we take, and this is our member states in Waipu articulating this position, is that having a national system doesn't transpose into an international system. And having a regional system, even if it's closer to an international system, is still not the same as an international system. So the best we can offer, we think, for the effective protection of the traditional knowledge, traditional cultural expressions would be to have an international system. It's the same sense in which, and this is a matter I can talk about, you will be aware in WTO, there are attempts there to to say, let's move the discussion from WIPO to WTO. 
because we need to protect traditional knowledge. And WTO members say, no, no, keep the discussion going on at WIPO. And people say the subtext is they want it to stay at WIPO because WIPO does not have the enforcement mechanism that WTO has. So it's a slightly different issue. But I think for as long as we only have national and regional types of protection, we are still not quite there where international forms of protection are concerned. Clearly, I think you, without saying it outright, I think you've underlined or at least alluded to this attention that exists between different countries when it comes to traditional knowledge. You know, I, I think we can safely say that the, the countries that are more industrialized probably lean more towards formal protection uh, of intellectual property with and traditional knowledge and cultural expressions within that framework, whereas the less industrialized countries that rely a lot more on this shared knowledge, this communal ownership of the knowledge, probably advocate for something that is outside of the traditional regime of, of intellectual property. And, and we've talked about the texts that are moving along uh, with the work of, of the IGC. Do we see the light of, at the end of the tunnel in terms of arriving at some sort of a consensus from a worldwide perspective on these on some of these issues? This is a really difficult one. If you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have said, oh, yeah, yeah, I think in two, three, four years from now, we should have gone to a diplomatic conference to adopt a treaty that will protect traditional knowledge, traditional cultural expressions. As at today, to be frank with you, Louis-Pierre, I think there is still a divergence of opinion among negotiators at the IGC. Admittedly, they have come a long way since the IGC was established in 2000. But it is clear there are still differences when it comes to the basic issues. We are talking about the substance itself, but we are even talking about process, how the committee functions, not to mention the context. And the context would refer to the broader multilateral landscape. If I were to give it a guess, I would say much as I would love to, predict there is going to be a treaty five years from today, I think it may take a lot more willpower and a lot more determination on the part of the negotiators. And this is the member states of the organization, of course, in addition to the non-governmental organizations. But the non-governmental organizations, unfortunately, don't have a vote. So they can only make their views known, and that's where it ends then it's the member states who take the actual decisions. And where the member states are concerned, for as long as there is no unanimity among the member states, it's unlikely there will be agreement to go to a diplomatic conference that would adopt a treaty effectively protecting. So much as we've come a long way, I think we still have a bit of a way to go, and this will just take a bit more resilience on the part of negotiators, a bit more willpower and a bit more determination to find solutions to the differences that exist between member states now. As you alluded to, FICPI is an NGO when it comes to WIPO negotiations or talks. I believe that uh, FICPI is an observer in many of the instances of the WIPO. If you were in a position to express a wish (laughs) as to what FICPI or its members could do, what would that wish be? 
Uh, thank you very much. Well, first of all, I would say, yes, FICP has been participating. And as you pointed out, FICP is an observer at the IGC. So we appreciate FICP's participation. And for those FICP members who have been unable to follow the IGC in person, we always have it on webcast. So they can also follow it virtually. And this is live. It's not after the event. We webcast it live. So that's always possible. We would hope FICP will continue to participate as effectively as it has. And we think FICP rightly realizes it is also in FICP's interest, in addition to it being in the interest of the international community, that we make some progress in this specific area. So we would encourage FICP members to continue airing their views, to continue discussing this matter, to continue trying to see how best they can assist to bridge any gaps there may be between the negotiators at the table. And hopefully, sooner or later, we will all come to grips with what we can be comfortable with and say, let's now go and adopt this. And this will help us to show the intellectual property system as being a lot more representative than it is known to be now. Certainly, I think, uh, and we go back to the the example that was given earlier about uh, Walt Disney and and some of the other conversations from large media conglomerates or entertainment conglomerates around traditional knowledge and cultural expression. I think continuing the conversation at that point and continuing to have acknowledgement or recognition of some of these issues by those large players may eventually start shaping public opinion on one hand and uh, government's positions on the other hand, in terms of a desire to arrive at, a, at an issue. Definitely. And, and Louis Pierre, I'm, I'm just looking at the time and I'm seeing we are running out of time very quickly, but I want to make sure I make two quick pitches before you throw me off. <laughs> <laughs> and the first one is just to remind you, this is a completely different topic. Every year we celebrate World Intellectual Property Day. And mm-hmm. this year, again, it's on the 26th of April. I thought I should mention this because you already raised the point of youth, and I talked about youth engagement. So the current WIPO dispensation is to say the youth are the future, they are the policymakers of the future, and they have the most to gain or to lose, depending on how we incorporate them within the intellectual property system. So we have a very active youth engagement program now, and we will be celebrating World Intellectual Property Day with the theme of youth, the future of intellectual property system. So we hope you will all plug in there between now and the 26th of April and after. And secondly, Louis Pierre, with your permission, I simply wanted to say we've been talking about the IGC. We've been talking about intellectual property. And just so you know, those, those of us in WIPO have come to the very firm conclusion, one of the reasons intellectual property has consistently had a bad rap is because it's been known to be an esoteric subject only of interest to a few lawyers, a few engineers, and having no relevance to the average person on the street. So in WIPO now, we've now adopted a new medium-term strategic plan. This is from 2022 to 2026. And for the next five years, we want to effectively demonstrate how we can create a world where innovation and creativity from anywhere 
is supported by intellectual property for the good of everyone. So we simply want to show the IP system can be made from anywhere and it will benefit anyone everywhere. And that's the essence of what we are doing at WIPO. And we are very grateful we have FICP and other partners joining us in this endeavor. Thank you. Edward, thank you very, very much for your time today. And I, I know you, you need to run because you have a, an obligation that cannot be moved. I wanted to thank you for your time today. I think it's been a very interesting conversation. I think it's been a very helpful conversation as well to bring some of these issues more to the forefront. I wish that you we could continue this conversation at some point. Thank you again for participating. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. If you have any questions about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can sign up for free and message us, ficp.org. You can also find out more of what's to come on the FICP Focus 45 podcast series, either on the events page of our website, LinkedIn, or via our newsletter. See you next time.